This is the Commercial Property Show Australia. Show number 31. Trends and observations over the last 12 months that as they've been reported because we've been living in this COVID environment that the immediate conclusion that a lot of people have drawn is oh that's because of COVID. COVID's a germ in the sky at the end of the day it's not a property market. Hey commercial property community how are you doing today thank you so much for joining me I am your host Andrew Bean and we have an awesome show lined up for you today and here it is. Simon Presley from Propertyology returns to the show today to talk about the current residential property boom. As always he is in excellent form giving us some hints, tips and locations where we should be looking. Investing in commercial property is a lot like a team sport. You need a lot of good players around you to complete a property transaction. No one can do it alone. If you're like me and want to surround yourself with like-minded people who have similar property goals, people who motivate you and push you to achieve more, then come and join the commercial property community today. You can find our private group on Facebook by searching Commercial Property Show Community or you can click on the link in the show notes. Our expert guests are just waiting to answer your questions in the forum and together we can help each other reach the ultimate goal of financial freedom. My next guest is the number one residential property analyst in Australia and founder of Propertyology. It's Mr. Simon Presley. How are you, mate? I'm oh, real well, Andrew. Thank you for those kind words, my friend. No worries, mate. It's not even close anymore, so don't even worry about that. Back in October of 2020, we had you on the show. That was episode 17, and you announced there would be a property boom before Christmas and that Australia was going through its biggest ever rental crisis. Mate, I would love for you to give us an update on that right now. Well, it's real. Whilst we did that uh, interview in October, it was actually in March, 12 months ago, just as Australia was going to lockdown and there was all the doomsdays, literally every bank in Australia and the economists who wanted to express an opinion, they all said we're going to have the biggest downturn in Australian real estate history and we're on record saying we not only disagreed with the downturn forecast, but there would be a boom and it would happen as soon as we described it as our cocoons. As soon as we were out of lockdown, we felt that the boom would happen. So I think officially the data would suggest that that boom started as early as August, bearing in mind there's always a lag with property data about four months from the time a property transacts to the numbers are actually released to us as early as August. The rental crisis is, I believe it's the single most important issue for Australia as a nation, not just in the real estate space. It is a serious concern. There is no quick fix to it, but it must be addressed. At the end of the day, Rental supply is a byproduct of investor participation. And when there's been a series of events over the last five or six years that have suppressed investor participation, people should not be surprised. We've got large parts of Australia, people living in cars and tents and 
couch surfing and that sort of stuff. That's not an Australia that we should be proud of. Yeah, exactly right, mate. So you're well ahead of the time predicting this. Did you notice a big difference when the mainstream media caught on? I mean, they started really reporting this the start of the year, probably around February. Did you see a big change then? I've kept the screen prints, mate. That was laughable what they said, but we've always maintained that the broader Australian media and broader society go to the wrong people when it comes to looking for expert comments on property. The Economist has never been that person. They don't buy property. They don't analyse property markets. They've never studied Australian property markets. But when did we see changes? Well, all their forecasting range from a 10% decline to as big as a 50% decline. And by about the middle of the year, I think they progressively started to realise that it wasn't going to be anything like that. But they adjusted their forecast, still saying a decline, but less than what they originally forecast. And as the year progressively unfolded, it, it felt like every month they were adjusting their forecast, which is a clear sign that no one knows what they're talking about if every month they're changing their bloody mind. They were just reacting to what the data was saying, and the data wasn't painting doom and gloom. So they sort of thought, we're going to look a bit silly if we don't keep adjusting things. Yeah. So why do you think we use economists that aren't really property professionals to get this information from? Is it just it's easier for the media outlets to find these people? Oh, look, don't get me wrong. Economists are intelligent people. The best analogy I can think of for an economist is they are the general practitioner. So think of medicine. Medicine's very complicated. Property markets are also very, very complicated. But in medicine, there's our trusted, very educated, honest general practitioner that we go to for general health issues. But they're not the surgeon who cuts us open. They're not the heart specialist. They're not the cancer specialist. They're not the ones who give birth to our children. There's a specialty in all fields of medicine and finance and properties like that as well. The economist has good general knowledge about financial matters, but there's no way in the world that you have tried to be a jack of all trades, you're going to be a master of none. Mm. So I think the reason that society continues to go to the economist is because they recognise that they have high general intelligence about financial matters and they don't have a vested interest. So they can be trusted Mm. to say what they believe to be true just because someone believes something to be true doesn't mean that they're right and that's the problem so hopefully coming out of covid one of many things that society can learn is that some things in life there is such a thing as a genuine specialist none of us are always going to be right myself included andrew but if you've got a career in that and you're studying that all day every day and you're transacting in that that's more of a specialist than a generalist I know exactly the amount of hard work that you put in studying all of these markets, reading every single newspaper every day. It's absolutely amazing. You're not just very lucky. You put in the hard work to be able to find these markets. How long do you think this boom is going to actually last? This boom or any other time for any other market, it's never one thing and no two markets will be doing the same thing any given time. At the moment, this is the first time since as far back as 2003, Andrew, that we can say that literally every location in Australia, property prices are rising at the same time, but they're not all rising at the same rate. They never will. For the boom at a macro level, at a broad you know, Australia level, I think the first thing that will happen to take some pressure out of the market is progressively the low volumes of properties listed for sale will over time start to normalise. But again, it won't be that we'll get back to that equilibrium on the same day in every part of Australia. It's actually local economic conditions that have always had the biggest influence on property prices. 
And I think there'll be parts of Australia that, all things being equal, as long as we don't get the likes of APRA and those sort of things coming in and spoiling the party for everybody, I think there'll be parts of Australia that will enjoy a boom for several years. And what that produces uh, collectively, who knows? The biggest boom in Australian real estate history was the five years ending 2005. And believe it or not, in that five-year period of time, we had 128 individual Australian towns or cities that saw the house price double or more in just that five-year period of time. I personally don't think this boom will be like that, but that doesn't mean there won't be some individual locations that might see property prices double within a five-year period of time. It was actually my next question I was going to ask you. What do you think the chances are of there being some kind of intervention by APRA? Well, you could never rule it out. I'd like to think that those people who make that decision, they can't answer that question yet because hopefully they haven't made that decision. But it concerns us because they've got form. It's the main cause of the rental crisis that we're talking about before, Andrew. If someone wants to buy a property, they're responsible borrowers, they've got reliable incomes, but the credit policy is just that tight that they can't get a loan approved. Well, you know, it's quite simple. The property transaction does not take place. So they've done it before, and I read their commentary, and it's quite obvious the tone, the some of the language they use. They don't enjoy it when property prices are going up, and they've proven that before. I think it's a sad way to live life. Um, frankly, mm. to, to think it's a bad thing for people to have a good time if there'd be positive things. But hopefully they learn from their past decisions, Andrew. We are that concerned about it. We just don't trust them that we published a report and submitted it to the federal government a few weeks ago, outlining exactly what has happened in terms of decisions that have been made over the last five or six years and then using evidence, using data to show this is the cause. So what you've done has caused this effect the rental crisis, the low volumes of properties listed for sale throughout Australia, the intense upward pressure on property prices. And people have forgotten that directly before COVID arrived, the Reserve Bank had dropped interest rates. I think it was five times for memory. Mm. Why did they do that? They did that because before COVID, Australia was concerned that we were heading into a recession. And the number one cause of that was credit supply had been tightened. Mm. Mate, can you just go through the history of what APRA has actually done in the last couple of, I think it's five or six years, the actual steps they've taken, just for the listeners that might not be as involved as we were? Yeah, and it might be difficult for people to get their head around all of this. There is a detailed report on the Propiology website titled, How Did Australia End Up in This Housing Undersupply, if you want to read the full details. But all these decisions was a direct knee-jerk reaction to then Sydney and Melbourne property boom, which started in early 2013 and ended in 2017. Now, during Sydney and Melbourne's boom, and whilst that was a reasonable boom, certainly wasn't as big as as what we're having now, but it was a reasonable size boom, but it was not a national boom. It was a two-city boom. And in fact, large parts of Australia then, Andrew, their economies were really soft. They were really, really struggling. But the commentary during the Sydney and Melbourne boom, everyone will remember this, there was a daily report that we've got this national housing affordability crisis. Well, no, yep. what we had was two cities that have always been expensive were becoming more expensive. But the rest of Australia hasn't been expensive and was not going through a property boom. They actually needed stimulus to be truth. But APRA got concerned about the rising debts in those two cities during the property boom and felt they needed to intervene. So the first thing they did was they... They made it a bit hard, or the way banks have to assess a loan application, 
the debt serviceability calculation that banks do made it a bit harder for some people to get loans approved. And they hoped that that would be enough to take some heat out of the Sydney and Melbourne market. But when that didn't work, they just kept squeezing tighter and tighter. Now, while APRA was doing the squeezing, and again, when APRA make a decision, it's a national decision. Their quota does not allow them to make decisions at a location level. It's a bit like the Reserve Bank. If the Reserve Bank increase or decrease interest rates, it's a national decision, not a local decision. So you had APRA that actually had three separate pieces of tightening credit over that three or four year period of time. You had the Foreign Investment Review Board that also increased taxes on foreigners who wanted to invest here to try to take the heat out of the market. You had the federal government significantly dilute depreciation that an investor could claim on an investment property. And we had two federal elections, one in July 2016 and another one in uh, May 2019. And both of those federal election campaigns, the number one policy that was debated for the six or 12 months leading into the election was scrapping of negative gearing. Now, whilst negative gearing survived both those elections, that create an enormous amount of uncertainty, not just investors, the whole Australian public. There were homeowners who were sort of saying, oh, we're not going to upgrade the house, dear, because property markets might decline if they scrap negative gearing. You had first home buyers saying, well, we don't want to buy a house either because why do you want to buy an asset that could lose value? So all these things, that's an enormous amount of what I call grit in a system when we should be putting lubrication in it, and it's just locked it up. It's locked it up in two fronts. It's locked up the rental market. All those decisions reduced participation of the everyday Aussie investor. So therefore, we didn't produce enough rental supply and we got a rental crisis. But it also meant that those people who already own a property, we're talking about the owner-occupiers here, the lack of uncertainty in their mind meant that they didn't have the confidence to sell their home. So the problem that we've got nationally today with not enough properties listed for sale is all those decisions I've just described to you. Because mm. it's a big decision to sell a home, isn't it? It's not something we make willy-nilly. There's a lot of household discussions there, a lot of ducks we've got to line up before we then appoint the real estate agent and put the signing at the front. But if during that decision-making process, there's all this talk going on in the meter about we're going to do this and we're going to do that, that damages confidence. And so the owner-occupier says, eh, we've been thinking about it, but we might just wait a while. So they put that sale off. And then the next event happens, just as they start to think, oh, now's a good time, the next federal election campaign or the next APRA announcement or the next COVID or whatever it is. So all these things combined just never allowed enough Australians to list properties for sale. And that's why we're here today with this enormous upward pressure. Yeah, it's really interesting how it's just had that small little chip away long-term effect on the actual supply of the market. Mate, in terms of the rental crisis... Investors obviously don't mind a bit of pressure on rents, but you don't want them to get too far out of whack. I know you said this, that the solution is going to be very, very difficult. It's obviously not just just build more houses. It's a lot more than that, isn't it? The solution for this. Yeah, it is. And this is the thing, you know, property is so complex. And whenever there's something happening in property market and a supply issue, people think the solution is immediately, oh, we'll just go build more. Well, it depends where is the supply. So there's supply as in rental supply. That's determined by how many investors own properties compared to how many owner occupiers. So that's got nothing to do with building houses or apartments. You can build a gazillion of them, but, and especially if no investor buys them, we really haven't done anything to ease pressure in the rental pool. There's resale supply. 
So this is, again, nothing to do with building more dwellings. It's the number of existing dwellings that Australia as a whole or an individual city has and how many of those are listed for sale. So these are the supply things. Yes, as an investor, I mean, all investors like having a situation when vacancy rates are low and they can justify increasing their rents because that means more income. But I'm a professional investor, but I'm also an Australian and I care more about my country and the nation's economy than I do about myself. And it's just not healthy when you've got so many people, let's say they want to move town because there's a job opportunity that they want to pursue. But in getting to that location, there's nothing available to rent. So you've got a family with three kids that have just accepted a promotion and they're couch surfing and applying to for every property available for rent and getting knocked back. That's not an Australia that we should be proud of. Or you've got some other people, how COVID might have affected them. They might, hey, let's, we want to move somewhere else. We've discovered different parts of Australia during lockdown and we're really excited to pursue a new chapter in our life in a different part of Australia. But they can't rent a property there or they can't buy a property there. So these are serious issues when something as basic as someone having accommodation right across the country, they just can't get accommodation. We should not be proud about that. And you can probably sense the passion in my voice. I'm really angry with the decisions that these people have made to cause this. This is self-inflicted. So, mate, what vacancy rate is a healthy market? Between that 2 and 3% vacancy rate is what we call a balanced market. If vacancy rates are above 3, that tips the scales in favour of the tenant. That's generally speaking when there's plenty of rental options for tenants and typically we start seeing rents fall. So that's the case at the moment for large parts of Sydney and Melbourne. When a vacancy rate is in that sort of mid 2% range, that's as balanced as you get. When vacancy rates get below 2%, that's when the scales are tipped in favour of the landlord. So the tenants don't have as many choices and that's typically when we start to see rents increasing. When a vacancy rate gets below 1.5%, that's crisis stuff. That's effectively nothing there. So 1.5% might, I guess, technically sound like, well, at least there are some properties advertised for rent. But in theory, those properties that you might see on, say, realestate.com or domain.com advertised for rent, they probably already have a tenant application received and approved, and the property manager hasn't taken the listing down. So that's crisis stuff. Right now, right across Australia, some recent research that Propertyology's done, our 150 largest towns and cities, 136 of those, Andrew, are in rental crisis. Wow, that's insane. So what's the actual increase of the rent there? Is it a couple of hundred dollars? It varies from location to location. If you're a tenant and you've been in the same dwelling for a year or more, the odds are you're probably still paying the same rent or seeing a mild increase. Landlords aren't always aware of pressure in markets. They could increase rents, and even if they are, most of them care more about keeping their existing tenant. The problem is the person looking to move. So let's say, for example, they were in rental accommodation, but they want something nicer, they want something bigger, so they're actively looking to rent something else. When they find it, it will be for a standard house, it will be not unusual of them having to pay an extra 50 or $60 a week for a standard house, that's a bit of coin to come out of a household budget. Or let's say it's a, an adolescent who's you know, looking to move out of home and pursue university or just they want some independence. 
they are really struggling finding rent, and we should not be proud of that. Yeah, I can imagine it'd be very, very hard if you're a single person looking to rent right now. I hope you're enjoying the show. We'll be back after this short break. At Developer Life, we get it. You own a commercial property and want to add value to it, but you're not sure how or you just don't have time. Well, it has now never been easier for the novice investor to get professional results with our strategic value add strategy plan. We identify exactly how to add value to your property and deliver a step-by-step strategy plan to our clients. And if you're a passive investor looking for a total hands-off approach, we can even manage it for you with our project management service. So contact us today at www.developalife.com.au to secure your free 30-minute consultation today. That's www.developalife.com.au. We want to help you maximize the value of your commercial property. Mate, so in terms of interstate migration, how is each state faring against historic movement now? Interstate migration, Queensland is the biggest beneficiary on sort of state rankings, but that's nothing new. There's a lot of things that trends and that's observations over the last 12 months that as they've been reported, because we've been living in this COVID environment, that the immediate conclusion that a lot of people have drawn is, oh, that's because of COVID. COVID's a germ in the sky at the end of the day. It's not a property market. There has been an acceleration of internal migration out of particularly Sydney and Melbourne. Melbourne, that's directly related to COVID, the four months lockdown there. Melbourne, on an average year from internal migration, Andrew, its population might grow by about 2,000 people. So not a lot, but usually it's in positive territory. Melbourne, in the nine months to the end of September, which is the latest ABS data, their population declined by 16,000 people. So that is COVID. Sydney typically loses between 22 and 25,000 people per annum through internal migration. That increased in the 12 months to the end of September to about 28,000 people. So it always loses a lot, but the rate of decline has accelerated. And I think it's pretty obvious that that's because those two big cities more congested and therefore going to be more vulnerable to lockdowns. And their economies are struggling because there's been a lot of job losses Some people have left those two big cities to pursue employment opportunities somewhere else, or others have left them just because they're not prepared to hang around for the next lockdown. It doesn't mean that they're guaranteed of not having a lockdown somewhere else, but logic would suggest where there's less population density, there's less chances of future lockdowns. So, mate, what about the working from home movement? How are you feeling about that now? It doesn't really get spoken about too often now. That's a great point, mate, because for a lot of us, it's become a new norm. I'm uh, permanently working from home now, and this time 12 months ago, if you or anybody had suggested that as a possibility, I would have completely laughed at it. But it's a real thing. You know, the technology, I think, has always been there. Zoom and Skype and cloud computing, you know, server access and all that sort of stuff has been here for a long period of time. But most of us have just not taken advantage of it. Humans are creatures of habit at the end of the day. I think one of the great things has come out of COVID When you take things away from human beings, we don't like having things taken away from us. 
just ask any parent whether their children like things being taken away from them. I think adults are the same. So COVID, if we sort of think of it in a practical sense as opposed to the virus, there's a lot of things that we couldn't do. There's a lot of things taken away from us. So it forced us to be lateral thinkers. And in some cases, the only way we could earn income was to find a way to work from home. And when they've done that, initially they were challenged by how to use this new technology. But once they figured that out, they realised they were a lot more productive. My uh, 2IC at Propertyology, it worked out for our team that we had saved, for working from home, we had created an extra 12 hours each in our week. That's more than a day's work. Yeah. Or not having to commute, not having to get up in the morning and iron shirts and get to a train station. Yeah, and that's the case for a lot of people. So increased productivity is, I think, a primary reason why a lot of people have worked from home. Now, that's had a, an influence on property markets. Some people who made that work from home decision have then decided that that home is not suitable for them and they've upgraded in some cases within the same town. But still, that's an extra transaction in real estate that would not have been there. So if there's a big enough critical mass doing that, changing their home because they're working in it now, that puts up with pressure. Others have gone one step further and they have completely moved town. They've figured out that I can work from home. I like this. Where's my idyllic lifestyle? And they've pursued that. We know of people who have brought forward their retirement plans. What I mean by that is they haven't totally stopped work, but the idyllic location that they had in their mind of moving to when they retired, during COVID, they've sort of gone, no, no, we're going to move to that location now and continue to work from home for the next five or 10 years of our life from that location. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And I've actually been tracking the job listings for working from home jobs since last November, and I have some interesting data now. So in November, there were 2,797 jobs listed for working from home. Now, in January, that number reduced to 2,037, as expected it would. And then in February, the listings actually exploded to 3,608 jobs and then grew again in March to 4,319. And now this month, it's flattened out a little bit to 4,186 jobs. Do you see that trend continuing? Because it's actually quite interesting just seeing it just fluctuate in that trend. In yeah. Jobs and I, seek. I think we wrote a report on this back in, I'm going to guess, Andrew, probably about August or something like that. And I described it then as a permanent structural change to Australian real estate, the work from home phenomenon. There's a lot of people that were sort of questioning then, oh, is this just a fad? The virus will go, you know, sooner or later and life will go back to normal. And I sort of went, well, maybe for some, not everyone likes working at home. So as soon as they can go back to work, they will do that. But there are others who have done it, never done it before, and they love it. And there's a lot of big businesses. I remember, uh, again, it would have been about July, August, reading reports of Telstra. They'd already announced way back then to their entire workforce, and they're one of Australia's biggest companies. They had said that we still want to be that employer of choice. Please let us know what sort of work environment you like, and we will accommodate that. If you want to be in the same city that you're in now and work from home, we can structure your shifts around that. If you want to move town and still work for us, we can do that. I think governments have done that. Even now that a lot of professional services jobs can technically go back to the office, getting 100% of their workforce back in those buildings might not be possible to comply with social distancing measures. Governments and banks and insurance companies, for example, so they might have people on shifts working a couple of days a week in the office and a couple at home. 
it's definitely a real thing. Those numbers you said about job advertisements, I don't at all think this is a fad. As I said earlier, the technology has been here for ages. Where COVID has just now meant that people are, are using it more to its full potential. Yeah, if people have got skills and their services are in high demand to work in certain roles and they say to the employer, happy to do the job, but I've adopted this new work from home thing. If you want my services, you're going to need to learn how to trust me to still be productive and work from home. I think it's here to stay, mate. Yeah, I actually um, track these in kind of bracketed wage salary as well. Like for the last three months, there's been over 1,600 jobs listed for jobs that are over 100K. So it's not a small like salary. It's a reasonable salary, pretty good salary for an Australian. So it's really, really I think good. we all talk about, and we have done for years, not just the COVID thing, work-life balance. I don't know anyone who doesn't want it, but I don't know many people who've mastered it. I know I bloody haven't. And work from home is part of that. You know, as I said, it gives back time to people. It's not for everybody. There will always be certain roles that you cannot do from home. And there will always be certain employers, a condition of you working for them will be that you can't work from home. And that's fine. The only official data on work from home is the last census that we did, which was back in August 2016. And back then, it was only 4.7% of Australia's workforce that had home as their predominant place of work. Now, we'll all do another census questionnaire, I think it's August this year, and it'll be interesting when the data's released on that. I would be shocked if it's not in the double digits. Now, people might think, oh, that's not many, really. Well, we've got about 13,000 jobs in this country. So if just 10% of those were permanently working from home, 1.3 million is a big chunk of jobs. And some of those people working from home will make real estate decisions based around that. Yeah, definitely, man. I guess that census coming up, I cannot wait for the amount of insights and data and stuff you pull from that. You must be just sitting there waiting for it. Yeah, to a degree. It is interesting, but it's a lot of it's really macro stuff. It's not sort of market specific stuff. There's a lot of there's some interesting demographics things in there, the work from home thing in there. Public transport, I remember reading that was something I found interesting in the last census. I know so many well-meaning property investors that thought a good decision for where to buy properties was follow train lines and things like that. And it's only about (laughs) 4% of Australians that actually catch a train to work. And I'm like, God, people are making these enormous financial decisions based on train stations, which have frankly always been there. They don't make property markets boom, but evidence like that from census uh, can be useful to help educate people. So there's already been a huge increase in the amount of investors that are interested in commercial property. Do you feel the residential boom will have a flow-on effect to commercial values? It's certainly related. I'm talking logically here. Not, I don't have numbers to back this up, but most people who own one or more commercial properties, you would think would also own residential real estate. So if we're in a climate when all of Australia and residential markets are booming, their capacity and their level of confidence to purchase commercial property increases because of the residential boom. So that's a genuine benefit. I think office space is something to be cautious of. I said earlier, Andrew, that we've gone the permanent work from home model. So my office has been up for sale for more than six months, eight months. It hasn't sold. And that's because there's so many other offices up for sale. So I think that's something to be careful of. That doesn't mean that all offices are bad, but people need to be more selective about it. I think the suburbs are going to see an increase and the inner city stuff will definitely struggle. But warehousing and uh, things like that, yeah, I think it's potentially an exciting outlook. Yeah, definitely, man. 
last year around November, about the same time I started collecting data for this, I've started getting really, really serious in collecting property data, job listing data, and just collecting a lot of stuff. And I'm doing it basically for all around Australia. And yeah, the office market listings, I'm doing vacancy rates and it's just huge, like everywhere in Australia. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a property nerd with numbers and stuff like you are, but I really like seeing the vacancies and stuff like that. So I'm getting really good insights now. Yeah, and data like that is very, very tangible. It shows exactly what's happening at the coalface. And when you've got data like that collected over a long period of time, progressively you start to create a big body of evidence that can show proof of when markets are softening or when they're tightening. We do the same thing with vacancy rates. For example, when I was quoting some of those statistics earlier, whilst they're current statistics, it's also numbers are always more valuable when they're analysed with some perspective. You need to know what a number today, whether it's big or small, but you also need to reference that to historical trends. Yeah, that's right. How do you actually calculate your vacancy rate? Do you use a third body to collect that or do you actually collect it through listings, current listings at that time? Yeah, we get our intelligence from all sources, but specific to residential vacancies, we grab that from SQM. Yeah, perfect. All right, mate. So how about areas that you're very, very bullish on? Can you share some with us? Oh, mate, there's so many so that we don't uh, leave too many people out. How about I... I nominate a couple of locations in each state in no particular order. Perfect, go for it. Which state do you want to start in? New South Wales. So I don't think it's any, uh, I'm breaking any secrets by saying that Byron Bay is a crazy hot market, but in and around Byron Bay, it's places like Coffs Harbour and Ballina that are doing exceptionally well. You know, someone who might be attracted to the Byron Bay lifestyle, but just ridiculously expensive, Coffs Harbour and Ballina have still got the same sort of lifestyle, but a bit more affordable. Inland, I mean, Orange has uh, been a spectacular market, one of Australia's strongest markets over the last five years and is still really strong now. Orange is one of many what we describe as a mini capital city. It's got mm-hmm. everything that a capital city's got, but it doesn't have 10 or 20 shopping centres. Diverse economy, consistently an unemployment rate well below the national average affordable housing, great lifestyle. But it's also places like Wagga and Armadale in New South Wales. Southern part, places like Batemans Bay, is a definite lifestyle COVID escapee choice. Victoria, whilst, it's, whilst Melbourne is hot, as is everywhere in Australia, it's what's this space for us. We've still got some concerns with Melbourne, not suggesting that it'll necessarily be a downturn, but I think it will prove to be one of the weakest performed markets over the next couple of years. But its strong markets are still places like Ballarat, Bendigo, Geelong to a lesser extent, but some lower-profile Victorian locations, Shepparton has an all-time record low number of properties listed for sale today and very tight rental markets. Swan Hill is another. Mildura, one of Australia's most productive agricultural precincts, has been a strong market for several years. South Australia, in the Adelaide Hills, it's places like Mount Barker, mm. Barossa, as with all of the wine regions throughout Australia, great lifestyles. It should not surprise people how well our winery regions, how how well their property markets perform. Lots of us go to those places for a long weekend. So they have the lifestyle there. Agriculture, which feeds into wineries, is a really exciting time ahead for Australia. Affordable housing, controlled housing supply. So not just Barossa, but the winery regions in general do very well, which takes me to Tassie. Some of the best wine in the world comes out of that state, and it's easily been Australia's best performing state 
from an economic perspective and a real estate perspective for a few years. So Launceston, I don't think there is a hotter market in Australia than Launceston right now, an absolute star property market, but it's also Devonport and Burnie. And all the doomsdays have said that COVID was going to cause Hobart to have a downturn. Well, Hobart today has its lowest ever volume of properties listed for sale and for rent. So it's boom, boom, boom for um, for Hobart still. Good old Western Australia had some really trying sort of five or six years. Great to see some good news over there in the West. It's not just Perth. I think Bustleton warrants a lot of attention, but also places like Albany, Esperance and Geraldton are worth a look. Have we forgotten anyone? Queensland. Yeah, Queensland. The internal migration we were talking about earlier, Brisbane is a beneficiary but Brisbane's not getting any more internal migration this year than what it got last year or the year before. A lot of it's going into Gold Coast and Sunshine Coast. But further north in the state, there's anecdotal reports, people relocating from Sydney and Melbourne, for example, to places like Townsville and Cairns, but also Harvey Bay in central Queensland and Toowoomba. Those markets are very strong from a price growth point of view and also rental pressure. So it's widespread, mate. And ACT and Northern Territory? Yeah, ACT, I think sort of shortly after COVID started, we produced a report ranking the eight capital cities. And we said then that we thought Canberra would be the most resilient capital city market for the 12 months ahead. It's proven to be that way. I mean, Canberra already had some pressure in its market before COVID arrived, but then Government started to rally and release all these stimulus packages and someone has to administer those and most of those are new jobs created in Canberra. So it shouldn't have surprised anyone really that Canberra did well, but it's still really strong now. For investors, just always be uh, cautious about the apartment market in Canberra. For the last 10 years, the number of new dwellings built in Canberra, it's about 70% of them have been attached dwellings as opposed to detached houses. If you're a Canberra, someone transacting Canberra real estate, detached houses needs to be your focus there. Darwin, like Western Australia, Darwin has had a tough last five years, but it was actually the best performed capital city property market over the last 12 months. The median house price increased by about 15% during the COVID year. Spectacular stuff. Excellent, mate. So are there any events in future that we need to put on our calendar to just keep an eye on? Any events? I don't think so. I think the volume of properties listed for sale will progressively increase over time as long as we don't have continuous government decisions targeted real estate. That will adjust itself and progressively that will take some of this current heat out of the market. But I can't think of any specific events. What I would stress is it's always important to focus on the fundamentals. We're in a climate at the moment, Andrew, where rising tides lift all ships. But you need to make sure that for a decision as big as real estate, that you are in a solid ship, you're not in a rubber dinghy. At some stage, the tide will go out and you don't want to become stranded on the on the beach. So what I mean by fundamentals is make sure you understand the three elements of supply, new construction, resale supply and rental supply. Assess that. Make sure that you're focusing on the demand side of things, strong local economic conditions. That is the basis for a decision that an investor will be happy with over the longer term. Exactly right, mate. Well, it's been absolutely a pleasure having you on the show. Where can listeners go to find out more about you? 
The Propertyology website, in a typical month, we will publish three or four research reports there. So if you jump on the website and look for the subscribe function, we promise that when our fortnightly newsletter goes out that we're never trying to sell you anything in there. It's information-based, and I think that also provides people with a really good platform for over a period of time to make an educated view about our skill and knowledge and some over time will then go one step further and reach out and engage our services to help them invest. Excellent, mate. My guest today has been Simon Presley. Cheers, buddy. Thank you, Andrew. Alright, alright, that brings us to our newest segment to the show, and that segment is called Ripper Ripper Resource. In this segment, I'm going to share some resources that I have personally used, read, or listened to that have made a big difference in my life, and I think they deserve to be shared. So this week's Ripper resource is The Investor's Guide to Growing Wealth in Self-Storage by A.J. Osborne. This is by far the best book on self-storage in the marketplace today. I've actually got the hard copy and I've also got the audio book as well. I interviewed A.J. on the podcast episode 13 if you want to jump back and listen to that. It's just a really, really easy, simple book to understand how to turn self-storage facilities around, what to look for, just basically the whole game. AJ is an absolutely top operator. He owns one of the largest portfolios of self-storage in America. And it was a really, really fun interview in episode 13. And I'm going to use this knowledge to invest in self-storage in future. So More on that later on, but it's this week's Ripper Resource. It is The Investor's Guide to Growing Wealth in Self-Storage by AJ Osborne. All right, it's time to crown this week's winner of the Value Add Strategy Plan. This week's winner is Wellwin. Now, all you have to do is get in contact with me to collect your prize. If you would like to go in the draw to win 50% off a strategic value add strategy plan for your commercial property, all you have to do is go onto Apple Podcasts, give the podcast a five-star rating and leave a review with your name and you will automatically be in the draw for next episode. I'd like to thank my guest Simon Presley and Kevin McLeod for the music and in the words of Grant Cardone, Your greatness is limited only by the investments you make in yourself. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Developer Live production.